Welcome and thank you for joining us in season three of the Religion Podcast, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. Hey, Joel. Rabbi Eric, what's up, man? Oh, it's good to see you, man. I, I apologize to you and our uh, maybe one dozen listeners. Uh, last week was an incredibly busy week, and I, I think I texted you in a panic saying, I can't do it today. I just can't do it. Um, but we are back today. You're wearing your Atlanta United jersey, I see. Nope, nope. Manchester United. Oh, God. Oh, wow. You could have said yes. No one would have known. I got to correct it. Today is Champions League Wednesday. So Manchester United play today. This weekend is the opening match for Atlanta United. So I'll be wearing it on Sunday after after worship. (laughs) You must be sad about that. I am a little. It's going to be 70,000 people, but I have some great friends who are using our seats and they'll they'll enjoy the story. Oh, that's good. And you yeah, should know, it. we I have saw. more than a dozen people that are enjoying this. I've told you. <laughs> like, it's... You know what? All, all it, I, I'm Truly and honestly, I, and I've said this, I think, to one of my congregants, even if we had zero, this is beneficial. Because not only is it just a good... Like, you and I have a fixed time to talk to each other, and we usually do a little bit of socializing beforehand and maybe sometimes afterwards... But yeah. if I'm preparing a sermon for on Friday and this topic is kind of in the ether, you know, our conversation helps to manage my thinking and, and yeah. give me new ideas. And so, like, it's very well, it's, selfish. We very are, selfish. <laughs> we are climbing. We had uh, 75 downloads just in the last week, and we're almost at 3,000 all-time downloads just with 40-something awesome. May- episodes. So. What if Spotify contacts us to take over Joe Rogan? I keep waiting for somebody to <laughs> to offer us a contract. Yes, <laughs> two hundred million. I'll, we'll do it. We'll we'll do it. Spotify, two hundred million. I, I think, think I'd do it for say. like twenty thousand. <laughs> so <laughs> I do I do it for fifty dollars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I do it for a new microphone. Right now, <laughs> right, yeah, right now we're doing it and we're paying for our stuff uh, ourselves, which is is fine. <laughs> Um, so uh, yeah, we even got a. This was one of your best podcasts yet, in in my humble opinion, uh, to one of our recent episodes. So that was a that wow. was a fun one. Well, what are we talking about today, Joel? Ah, do I get to go first? I think I went first last time, if memory serves. I'm good with that. So um, I don't know. I'm guessing you probably have, but there's a couple in Tennessee, Elizabeth and Gabrielle. Um, they are were attempting to adopt a child out of Florida, and they got deep, deep into the process. And on the day, they were set to do the last little bit of state-required family training the agency that is being supported by state funds to provide that training backed out, saying that the couple didn't share the agency's Christian beliefs because the couple are Jewish. So they, they have been blocked from adoption by a government-funded agency in the state of Tennessee 
because of their religion. And this all comes down to a religious a law that the governor of Tennessee signed that allows state-funded agencies, child placement agencies, to decline to assist couples or individuals in any case that would violate the agency's, quote, written religious or moral convictions. Um, and it was probably written in for same-sex couples, uh, if you want to think about it cynically. But in this case, it was used to go after— Or just correctly. Yeah. It, I mean, let's be honest. That's yeah. exactly what it was. Yeah. And then they, t- they took it to the next step of disgusting and used it against a Jewish couple, a heterosexual couple. Um, and I am just flabbergasted that— um, that this is still a reality. And I, so I bring it to you today and wonder, have you heard about this? And how are you feeling about this? Is the Jewish community talking about this? So um, my first response is somewhat personal in that, you know, it's a small world, Joel. This is a congregant of mine. What? Yeah. Well, it, it's the daughter of a congregant, but um, I've met her. I've spoken to her several times. Um, and, and it's a daughter of a beloved congregant who, um, you know, I, I may, may be one of our listeners, actually. And um, this it's a wonderful family. Not that that matters, but it just, you know, from a personal perspective, it just makes it that much more painful. So this gentleman came to me, the, the not the person who wants to adopt the baby, but that that person's father came to me six, seven, eight years ago wanting to convert to Judaism. That's how I met this mm-hmm. person. Um, was an exceptional conversion student. And this is an old, I mean, he, he's our parents' age. Um, talented in many ways, mensch of a guy, funny, nice, smart. Um, and after he converted, has been an unbelievably active member of our congregation. Actually, um, was on our board for quite a while on a number of committees. And um, he and his wife were actually supposed to go to Israel with us two years ago. And then because of COVID, they actually got stuck in England. They, they still tried to go, but then they couldn't get from England to Israel. Mm-hmm. All of this is to, st- is to say that they spoke to me, this is probably two, three, four months ago, saying, you know, our daughter is having some issues adopting a child. Would you mind speaking to her. Um, and this is when I learned of this situation. And and since then, they've um, gotten the ACLU involved, which yeah. is the absolute right organization for this. And um, yeah, so it, it you know, it, it's, it hits home in the fact that it's particularly a Jewish family that's being denied the adoption. And it hits home because I know... Oh. Um, the prospective mother, I haven't met the father, but I, everything I know about him is that he's a, a wonderful human being. Um, but this would upset me. It, it, you know, you brought up a, a same-sex couple trying to adopt. It would upset me in, in a similar way, if not as personally. But yeah, it, it's ridiculous. And, and I want to be clear. It's ridiculous because it is a state agency. If it was a Christian organization that, you know, adopted children to Christian families, I would have no problem with that. Hmm. They have the, just like, you know, you are a 
uh, church that caters to a particular branch of Christianity and me with a particular branch of Judaism. Like that's that's what we do. But that's not what the state does. I mean, to me, this is classic First Amendment privilege of a religion to say they are not, quote unquote, Christian values or whatever, whatever sort of, you know, term they're using is a violation to me of the First Amendment. Mm. And I know you agree, but I I just like it's so what made you pick that for today? Well, I, you know, I just, I scan it, right? And I always look for church or religion or culture or politics items. Um, and I I typically don't use them just to find things for this podcast, but I just like trying to see how our country, how our world is doing issues of culture and community and faith and politics. Because, it, you know, a lot of times in church, maybe this is true for you in synagogue, people tell me, well, you know, you got to keep the politics out of church. And what I, I have to tell them is actually no, based on Jesus, like politics and church are all on top of one another. And what we believe about who God is and how God wants us to do community, that not only affects how we do community at synagogue or at church, it affects how we do community everywhere. So we are asking all of our community organizers slash politicians to do things in a way that look more holy and just and righteous. So to look at this weird little one, it's one of those church and state moments, and I tend to be attracted to those debates. So what's interesting is it's a Methodist home and it attached to a Methodist church, and they say things in the bit, in the piece, that they they try to find parents slash caregivers that will match their views and opinions on these things. And if they don't, they just refer them out to somebody who will. And and I think the case is going to be that the state partners with a lot of different agencies of a lot of different faiths. And so the the Jewish couple just picked the wrong agency to help them find a child. And and I without knowing it, of course. Yeah. Right. Um, well, <laughs> it is the Methodist home. Like, they probably could have caught that, but... Well, yes, but in terms of without knowing that there'd be these difficulties. Like, they weren't looking for a fight, in other words. They were looking to adopt a baby. Perfect. Yeah, and, and where I, I left off was that I, I don't think it should be on the parents to self-censor um, which agency they choose to partner with, knowing that they're all state-funded, the parents should be able to go to any one of them and get the same equal fair treatment. But what's happening is the government is um, trying to allow these agencies freedom of religion in a discriminatory way as opposed to protecting the freedom of religion of the parents that their agencies are supposed to serve. Yes, absolutely. And again, I know you agree with this, but it's like what I, I, you know, like you, you know, sometimes we want to know like what's behind the policy, right? Like what's behind the rule? What's, what's the, what's the goal or like, do they really think that a, child, an adopted child raised in a Jewish home is not going to have good parents? I mean, do they think that child is going to hell? I mean, I just, I I really do want to understand it. I still will disagree vehemently and be upset about it, but... um, Right, for me, there's a... judgment call. 
yeah, there's a political debate here and there's a theological debate here. The political debate here has to do with freedom of religion versus freedom from religion. And as we're protecting people's freedom to practice religion, however they want to do it, they are free to have whatever religion they wish. That is being given to the parents. You're free to be Jewish. That is being given to the agency. You are free to be Christians. But now what we're not doing is we, we are protect, we are changing freedom of religion to freedom from other people's religion. And we are giving that agency, that Christian agency, freedom from having to serve and treat others as equal, even if they don't have a matching religion. And that is not, I Correct. don't think, that is politically what our Constitution was designed to do. Um, if you want to seclude oh, yourself and, and practice your religion in a certain way with certain people, okay. But when you move through the world, you cannot impose religion on others, nor can you discriminate against them because of their difference of religion. And this is clearly an agency. In a government capacity. Right. Or in a... Yes. And this is clearly a, a, an agency that is discriminating based off religion. And and I, I'm so tired of the First Amendment being freedom from anybody else's religion when really all it is is freedom of my own. Yes. Yeah. It, it's really, it's the same thing to me of the, remember after um, same-sex marriages became federal law, the, the clerk in, I want to say Kentucky. Alabama. Refused to give someone a wedding license. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you can be, I, I have a similar kind of stance on, on abortion in that you as a person can be vehemently against abortion for you and your family and still be pro-choice from a legal perspective. I don't know many people who are, but you can be. That's not a disconnect for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's so upsetting. And I'm, I'm, I am thankful that, you know, this family and this story has gotten a lot of press and a lot of, um, you know, it's been lifted up as a as a travesty, and I and I think lots of people are on the right side of this. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we'll 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 see what happens. And the thing I was saying, I, we we got cut off for a second, so apologies if um, you're getting this twice. Is they also weren't looking for a fight? Like in other words, they weren't going to this agency knowing that they'd say no, and then so that they could contact an attorney. They like they are loving parents that want to raise a child. Mm -hmm. And and even though that may not make a legal difference, that makes a difference to me anyway. Yeah, I'm on board with you on that. And you can tell just by the way they are talking, they, in their interviews, the way they responded, they, they really just thought they were about to adopt a kid who needed loving caregivers and had some issues, but they saw his face and his smile and they read his story and they said yes. And it it wasn't going to be easy. It was going to be hard. But they said yes and they were going for it. And the agency cut him. Um, it, it, in that situation, like you, you brought up the person who worked for the state whose personal religion doesn't jive with same-sex couples – Okay, but you're in a government position where you're not allowed to discriminate on others based off of that personal religious belief. Well, she did. She used the government as a tool to enforce her religious um, option onto others. 
And that's not what is protected in the Constitution. It's, it's freedom of religion. You can't impose it out through the government onto others. And, and the way we're getting that upside down now is, is really bothering me as a religious professional because oh, Christians yes. are doing it. We're the ones in power. We're like the white folks of, re- of religion in America, and we have all the power. Dang it. And um, we're pretending like if, if we are um, having to share equal space with other religions, then that is, um, that is somehow oppressive of us. And that is not it. Ah, the theological one. Oh, I know. The theological one. Jesus was a Jew, people. <laughs> Come on. Like Joseph and and Mary, right, were Jewish. And the baby that they had that Joseph adopted was a Jewish baby. So when a Christian is in any way against Jews, they are against their own Lord and the hypocrisy of that should make them gag on their communion wafer. It is so sad to watch how they they just miss that instantaneous obvious connection. And I I don't know how to how to lift that up for somebody. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Enough about yeah, I'm glad you brought that one up. <laughs> enough, enough about Tennessee bigotry. Let's move on to yes. something different. So uh, it's funny because you brought uh, your topic today, and we, you know we, we did not plan this. Your topic today, it, it, I don't, it wasn't about Judaism per se, but revolved around a, an incident regarding Judaism, and mine is Catholicism. <laughs> so there, there was a story uh, last week. Uh, the one I have in front of me was published uh, on Valentine's Day, uh, that a Catholic priest resigned from his position after it was discovered that he had used the wrong words in the ritual of baptizing the you know hundreds of people that he had baptized through his career and what he did and I, I don't know if you know kind of the, this ritual more specifically I mean I just know what I've read here but um, apparently in the uh, in a Catholic baptism there is a line, where there is the phrase, I baptize you from the priest. And he was saying, we baptize you. And that one word, incorrectly used, which some could argue is more inclusive, um, caused the church to kind of, you know, have an investigation of sorts. And he resigned. And he wrote, uh, he deeply regrets the mistake and will step down from the pulpit in order to dedicate my energy and full-time ministry to help heal those affected. And aside from being kind of heartbroken, because this absolutely seems like, you know, what we would call an honest mistake, not a not a, a trivial mistake, but an honest mistake, is the power of words especially the power of words with regard to religion. And um, I think sometimes we as more liberal practitioners of religion 
have a, a stereotype applied to us that, you know, it doesn't matter. You could use whatever word you want, Hebrew, English, you know, we could change things. And whereas we do change things as a, as a reformed Jew, it's in my name. It's in, it's in the literal definition of what I am to reform things. But I have a deep respect for the power of words and the specificity of ritual. Um, I can't think of anything in Judaism that has a parallel like this, where if, if I were to say a wrong word at, you know, a baby naming or a bar mitzvah or a wedding, um, that anything, you know, I would be defrocked, so to speak, or asked to resign, certainly for doing something inappropriate, God forbid, but, you know, or unethical, but that's very different than this. And so, um, you know, on the one hand, my heart aches for this guy. And on the other hand, I, I respect his commitment that for him, this was a grievous error. Even though to my more liberal eyes, it's like, yeah, like he didn't say it exactly right, you know? <laughs> and as I say that, let me say one other thing. Um, th there's a, a one of my favorite stories in the Torah that's also one of the most disturbing, I don't know what that says about me, is about um, Aaron's sons, you know, Moses's brother, his sons, Nadiv and Avihu. And the Torah tells us that as the Israelites were wandering, they go into the tabernacle and offer an, what the Torah says is an ish zara to God, a strange fire. I feel like I've brought that up before because then I said it's a song by the Indigo Girls and you and uh -huh. I yeah, riffed yeah. on that for a second. Um, and all that implies is that – or all that it says rather, what, what it implies is another conversation, is that they did something wrong. Perhaps purposefully, perhaps not purposefully, but they did something wrong in the ritual. Strange fire. But God killed them. Yeah. And so it, it, it hearkens to this for me in, in, in different ways. So uh, th that's my thoughts. I, I just thought it would be interesting to kind of riff on that with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that one up. I've had this conversation with some others around me um, in, in awareness, you know, that this is going on in our – in our standard suggested liturgies, it is I. You, you say so-and-so, first name only. You don't say their last name. I baptized you in the name of the Father or Son. Um, but let's play with for a minute what the theological difference is between using first, second, or third person. I baptize you. It sounds like the priest or pastor has the power to do baptism. And it sounds like... That, that may have been given by a chain of command from God through Jesus to Peter down through popes and archbishops and bishops and priests in the Catholic Church. And so to maintain the Catholic chain of command, it is really important that the priest say, I. If the priest says, we, it's not a theological problem. It's not a baptism problem. It's a church polity problem. It suggests that the people of that space have some power and access to God despite having to go through the priest or bishop or archbishop or pope. And in the Catholic Church, that's a big no-no. If that person sitting in the pew wants to have godly power, they get that 
through their priest and pope. And that's been maintained for a really long time. So his mistake isn't a mistake of representation of God and isn't a mistake for that infant he baptized. It's a mistake for the pope and all the boys who are maintaining Vatican (laughs) power. At which point, when he apologizes to everybody, right, it's almost like one of those hostage letters <laughs> where, where you realize he's being told what to say by all the guys that are upstream from him all the way to Rome and being suggested, hey, pal, if you say we baptize, as in we the congregation baptize, you undermine your own authority and all of our authority, and you give the people a little too much priesthood. Now, I am from the Reformed tradition, and we have a base theological doctrine, priesthood of all believers, meaning everybody's chief priest is Jesus. And I don't have to go through any pope or anybody else to have access to God. If God is doing something in my life, God is doing it, and it isn't mediated by anybody else. I check with my community. To do, Is this God, y'all? I don't know. It kind of feels God. I don't know. And they tell me. But sometimes the community gets it wrong, and sometimes the community gets it right. So in the Catholic world, that word is a big mistake, but not for theological reasons, just for power reasons. In my world, that word is nothing. And that's not a conservative liberal thing. And it's not a theological thing. It's a what's called a polity thing, how church is structured or organizes itself. And it grosses me out that the greater church punished this priest and he had to resign and he had to apologize. But in their polity makes total sense. So I you I think you explained that really well of what I'll use the loaded word here what the sin here is that it, it, it the, my only question is isn't it theological in the sense of a person in Catholicism a person needing a priest as an intermediary for certain things isn't that a theological Discipline's not the right word, but isn't that theological in nature? Well, in some strange of Christianity, like Orthodox or Catholic, um, then God's work only happens if we do it the right way. So whatever God is doing in the world, it is mediated through us, and it's only God if we say the right word and use the right stuff and we bless the water in the right way and we broke the bread in the right way. And and that's what the reformers and the reformation fought against. Like sometimes we, even if we do our very best to do it perfectly, we're still sinners and we still saying every word we say and every act we take with some sin, which means it's not holy because of us. It's holy because of God behind us, despite us. Meaning that in my theology, when I and the congregation come together and and we (laughs) witness the baptism of a child, we don't really believe that I 
am baptizing the child, or we, the congregation, are baptizing the child. We believe the child is being baptized by the grace of God. And my my solution to this is it shouldn't be first person, I baptize, nor should it be third person, we, we, plural, first person, plural, we baptize. It should be second person. You are baptized. And, and who is the subject? Who did the baptism here? God did. All we know is you are baptized. We believe that for you. And I didn't do it, right. and we didn't do it. God did it. But you, young one, are baptized. And, and I wish now <laughs> that has me rethinking our baptism liturgy. I kind of want to say it differently <laughs> from now on. Right. Well, it, and it, I, I think an example that everyone can relate to is the, you know, the line at a wedding, I pronounce you, you know, the spouse and spouse, um, as opposed to we. And it, it's funny because I actually don't use that line. In a Jewish wedding, you can the step on the glass, scream mazel tov, and it's over. Um, there's no kind of pronouncement per se, at least the way I do weddings. Um, now, I sign a legal document, but that's civil law. That's not, well, I sign a religious legal document too, the ketubah, the marriage contract. Um, but in terms of, you know, Georgia law or wherever I do a wedding, you know, I sign a marriage certificate that I'm a, you know, a um, licensed clergy member, licensed meaning from an yep. accredited, you know, seminary, um, as you do. Um, so in that case, it is important that I sign it and not, you know, a, a congregant or someone who was at the wedding unless they happen to be a legal officiant. Um, but yeah, very similarly, do, do I have a problem with language in that way? Because in Reformed Judaism, and frankly, Judaism writ large, you don't need an intermediary. There is nothing from a religious perspective, again, civil law different, but from religious law, there is nothing that a congregation or a Jew as an individual needs me for. Um, you know, I say that jokingly. Sometimes I share that. I'm like, but I like my job, everyone. <laughs> Don't you know? Um, but it's not. It's not like Catholicism where one needs to see a priest in order to achieve X, Y, Z. Yeah. Yeah, we we just sent our other pastor on a five or six week sabbatical, a week's vacation and five week sabbatical, Reverend Caitlin and and I wanted to so we we brought her up front and my kind of goal was you know if I can get a tear and a chuckle out of her we've done really well today so uh, I pulled up a letter from our um, the pastor who was at this church before me Reverend Sarah. And she had a note for Caitlin, and that, of course, brought the tear to Caitlin's eye. And then I put this big old floppy Nashville Predators foam hat on her head because she's going to a hockey game in Nashville, and that made her laugh. But at one point in the explaining to the congregation what a sabbatical is, I said to them, there is nothing that Reverend Caitlin does for this church that we cannot do while she is away. And the congregation bucked me on that. They were like, oh, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And what they wanted to tell her is, you're irreplaceable to us. We love you. But the it was a theological statement I was making, not a personal or affectionate statement. Yes. So I kind of check with Caitlin. Caitlin, did I say that wrong? And she's like, nope. <laughs> right. So I had to say it again to them. Now, listen, she does. We love her. We love what she does for us. 
But there's nothing that we ask her to do for us when she's with us that we as the church cannot do without her for a while, right? It isn't necessary for her to be here for us to be church. When she is with us and when she is not, we will still be church. And we will pick up that cross and bury it for a bit. And they're like, oh, okay. But I, I, I wonder, can you think of yourself getting, like having to write a contrition statement and having to resign because there is some high holy moment where you said a pronoun wrong? No, but it's also, it, it, I, you know, I, on the one hand, I'm quick to judge this as ridiculous is too strong a word, but, you know, in that side of the spectrum. But on the other hand, we are formed so paradigmatically differently. So first of all, the the kind of uh, overarching organization above my congregation, the Union for Reform Judaism, they don't necessarily, it's not like the Pope issues a fiat and everyone does it. There, it, it it's, it, it's just a completely different setup than that yeah. one. And two, there's not, the closest that would come to that would be, you know, so like the, the what's known as the watchword of our faith, the Shema, is a prayer that if every Jewish person knows one prayer, whether they go to synagogue or went to Hebrew school, it's the Shema. It's very short. It says, Hear, O Israel, Adonai is our God, Adonai is one. It comes from uh, the beginning of Deuteronomy. If I had a service, I was to mispronounce that prayer, people would notice. Mm -hmm. They'd be like, that's odd. Rabbi Linder, of you know, he's the rabbi. He messed up that prayer. But it wouldn't be, so it, it would be bad in the sense of I should know better and what was I doing, yep. but not from any sort of um, kind of legalistic Jewish law perspective. It would very much just be a, he screwed up and perhaps badly. Um, what if you it, didn't yeah, say Adonai? A, oh, same thing. What if you they, said they, the word behind hey, Rabbi, Adonai? Yeah, yeah. Hey, Rabbi, did you mean to leave God out? Oh my gosh, I should have had a V eight. You know, remember those commercials when we were kids? For our younger listeners, uh, do a YouTube search on "I should have had a V eight. Um, I mean, I said that to someone a few weeks ago. They had no idea what I was talking right, about, sure. and yeah. it's such a good like meme. Such yeah. a good reference for things. But, no, but I, um, I wondered if yeah. sometimes you could get in trouble if you said. The I am, as opposed to Adonai. I mean, part of it is, and I, I, I am not by any means insulting my congregants when I say this, but people would need to know, first of all. Yeah. So it takes a certain level of kind of education and experience. And then it's, it's somewhat personal how much that person, how much it matters to that person. So I, yep. an example, a personal example that, that happened that was, um, you know, it, this past high holidays. So, you know, you you and I probably discussed uh, him so it feels so long ago how this year of COVID in some ways has been more difficult yeah. than the first year with everything being hybrid and that sort of thing. And and you know, I found this year's high holiday services to be very difficult, both 
kind of intellectually and theologically and also pragmatically, like literally that how are we going to do this right. with, you know, we don't have an IT person or, you know, a person that can do Zoom. Like I'm doing all that while leading the service. All that is to say um, at the very end of Yom Kippur, you know, my, my mind starts to go a little bit. It's also a fast day. You, you probably know that. And um, I neglected to blow the shofar at the very end of the service, which you're supposed right. to do. Some people noticed and said, hey, Rabbi, and we're very kind about it. Uh, did you forget to blow the shofar? Oh, I, oh my gosh, I did. I am so sorry. Oh, you know, no big deal. Or, you know, just wanted to know if, like people, just like when you watch a movie, people want to know if there's a method behind it, right? And sometimes <laughs> there's no method. But one person in particular, who was actually not a congregant, um, but a guest of the congregation, was furious about it. And for that person, that was an incredibly important part of the mm -hmm. service. And whereas I, I thought to myself, you know, that, you know, that person may not have approached me the best way or, you know, to focus on that one particular thing outside of the context of everything seems a little harsh for that person that was really important and you know you and i in our own prayer lives or ritual lives probably have those things that are super important and meaningful to us that aren't necessarily for others and mm -hmm. so you know i get that as a worship leader um but again totally different than the scenario you know with this priest. It tells you a lot about somebody's or a group's theological armor by how much they protect the chinks in it. So <laughs> it, that person, right, it's okay, you said that wrong or you put that out of order or whatever. He, he may or may not react. You leave out the the blowing of the ram's horn and, oh my gosh, that's a big deal, right? So that it tells you something about that person more than it does about anything else. And I think this Catholic priest issue it tells you something about the Catholic structure more than it does about God or baptism. The fact that they have to like respond with a SWAT team, but he said we instead of I, <laughs> kind of tells you, oh, that's the chink in the Catholic theological armor. If, if they ever give the people's theology enough power, then Vatican Rome power drops too much. And the whole thing unravels. So any threat to the people having the power to embody and and be priests to one another or have access to God directly without the priest, then that undermines Rome. And we can't let that happen. Um, I, I don't know. It's kind of scary. There was one suggestion, though, from a buddy of mine who said the Pope probably likes it. And I went, what? That makes no sense, dude. The Pope's protecting his power. And he goes, no, no, I think the Pope's is going to like this fight because this Pope is a Pope of the people a little more and will enjoy giving more power to the people in the pews and not keeping power for himself and his bishops. So this might be something that the Pope enjoys. And I thought, whoa, that, that would be like Vatican III, you know, it would really change the whole Catholic Church if they were to say it is the congregation that has the power to baptize, not Rome. Or, so what's interesting to me, too, is, 
you could have the belief that it's not the congregation's power to baptize and also just kind of say the priest made a mistake. We're going to, you know, quote unquote, let it go. Yeah. And those two can't. And so, you know, there's an example in Judaism when a rabbi is ordained the uh, he, traditionally he but now thankfully you know he or she or them um is or is ordained by a person and you know there's not necessarily formulaic language in the same vein as this but you know i imagine that if the same kind of mistake was made it doesn't make whoever um that that person ordained not a rabbi anymore it, it would be a mistake um and to me, that's the difference. I, I, I can, I'll, like for me, the Catholic Church can have the belief, whether it's polity or theological, that a priest baptizes. And, okay, this priest made a mistake. <laughs> that would have been the perfect solution. If, if Rome had just said, oh, rats, this priest screwed up. But remember, while we still expect priests to be the one to mediate baptisms. And while we do train priests on the language that they're supposed to use, um, my guess is this guy may or may not have been a, a natural speaker. Or, you know, Maybe he was a bilingual and he was doing the translation. or I, I don't know. But they had the opportunity right there to say, but behind it, God baptizes. And those baptizes are not defunct because a priest used the wrong pronoun. That God still did it, and this priest will be corrected and reprimanded and apologized, and we'll send everybody that he baptized a note saying on behalf of the Vatican, yes, you are still baptized by God, and here's a Pope's signature on it in order to maintain that authority without having to undermine the ritual just to protect Rome power. Yes. <laughs> and... uh yeah, I mean, I, I just I think it's fascinating. Is I, I mean, I think you and I could talk for even longer about this. Yeah, um, yeah, that'd be fun. I'd be curious what listeners think about it too. It's also a story that I think it's easy to have an opinion on. <laughs> you know, because it's kind of it, it's just it, it, it's an easy to understand story, and I think whether you're religious or not, and regardless of what religion you are. Um, yeah, I think there, there's an opinion there, and uh, we'd be curious to hear it. Thanks, everyone, for joining in and for yeah. helping and supporting us and listening. And uh, if you have questions for us, we're still at religionpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter and some other places as well. Um, and in, in the show notes, you find ways to, to tap me or Eric individually or to tap our congregation. So let us know what uh, suggestions you have for future topics. Absolutely. And until then, keep it real, everyone. And good talking to you, Joel. You too, buddy. Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. I'm Reverend Joel Talbert, and on behalf of Rabbi Eric Linder and all the Real Religion fans out there, we thank you for being with us today and invite you to send us any feedback or suggestions or topic ideas to realreligionpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep it real.